Well, this morning I'd like to take you to one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 28. I was kind of hoping nobody would download the sermon uh, from our church from last Sunday, because uh, I'm going to do a repeat here this Sunday, and I noticed that there hadn't been any more downloads, so I'm hoping that none of you listened to that. I had the uh, benefit of re-listening to what I preached last Sunday, and throughout the listening experience, I kept making mental notes, edit, 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 delete, delete, delete. <laughs> and so we've got, I think we've got a pretty good revision. Hopefully uh, hopefully it can be beneficial to you this morning. So why don't we read that text? Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. And I am using the English Standard Version of the Bible. I hope you don't mind. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment, great, or there is no other commandment, greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Just a quick question, Lauren. Do I need to record or? Okay. Might be better off not recording it, but I know you guys are in the habit of that. Okay. All right. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we bow, bow our hearts and minds before you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship here together in this place, in this town. Father, we know that you are sovereign, that you are uh, infinitely wise, holy, just, gracious and kind. And Father, we worship you for who you are, not for who we think or would prefer that you were, but for who the scriptures tell us that you are. Father, we praise you for what for who you are, who you are as well as what you have done. And Father, may this time truly bring honor and glory to you as we are not here to simply promote man's ideas and and uh, worldly philosophies, but rather we are here to look into your word and to see what, what it is that we need to know concerning you 
and what you require of us. So, Father, again, to your glory and honor this morning, may our time be committed. Amen. Just to give you a little bit of context here, I know I'm cutting into uh, right into the middle of a gospel, and it's a little bit hard. Um, in our church, I started in Mark chapter 1, and I've worked my way right through to really right, right where we're at where we are at this morning, and so it's never really necessary to get give much of a background, but I'll give you a little bit. Chapter 12 of Mark takes place during the final week of Jesus' ministry, or the final week of his earthly life, uh, which is Wednesday of Passion Week. Um, and this is... What the text we're looking at this morning is the third of three encounters between Jesus and delegations sent by the Sanhedrin. Now, just to clarify what or who the Sanhedrin is, uh, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish high court consisting of 71 members. There's one high priest and then 70 members of various sects, including the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Herodians, and scribes. So the, it's the, the elite belong to the Sanhedrin, and they are elected into, into this court. And this, this court, called the Sanhedrin, makes decisions uh, concerning the nation of Israel. Uh, one of the reasons you don't see the word Sanhedrin in your English Bible, I think I'm, the translation I use I don't believe uses it once, but you will see it as council. In Acts, uh, the early chapters of Acts, where the apostles are arrested, they're brought before the council, it says. If you look at the Greek word, you'll see that it's synadrian. Not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, but and, and that is how we've derived, the, or from where we've der- derived the word Sanhedrin. Now, these delegations or these groups of accusers that the Sanhedrin have assigned to try and and, and, uh, trap Jesus in their talk, or in his talk, or his doctrine, they uh, seem to, you know, follow each other to Jesus, each with a different approach and with the same motive. That is, they are seeking to entrap him in his talk, trying to incriminate him on matters of doctrine. And the reason the Sanhedrin is doing this is because it is necessary, at least in their, in their, uh, in their minds, that Jesus must be shut down. He must be taken out. He is a threat to their entire system. He's a threat to Judaism. And therefore, they must silence him. And so if you look right at the beginning of chapter 12, or even go back to 11, verse 27, and to the end of the chapter, you'll find that first delegation coming to Jesus, uh, consisting of Pharisees and Herodians. 
they pose a question to Jesus about paying taxes. What what is your Jesus, what's your opinion of our duties toward Rome? Are we supposed to pay taxes or not? What does the Bible say? And and Jesus answers that by saying, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to him. And uh, they they weren't able to come up with a counter on that one and left it. The second delegation, consisting of Sadducees, come to him with the question of resurrection. And they give this hypothetical scenario of one man or one woman marrying seven brothers uh, after each one dies and According to the laws of Levirate marriage, the brother of the deceased husband had to assume the the mar- or the the wife and all her property to carry on the family name. And so, what was in view is that hopefully a son would come out of one of those relationships and would able to carry on the family name. And and they posed this question, thinking that this this would be ridiculously hard to answer if you believe in resurrection because the Sadducees, of course, denied the fact that there is such a thing as resurrection. And Jesus says, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God either because there's no such thing as marriage in the afterlife. That people are like angels and the fact that they are become immortal, they have no need for procreation to sustain their existence, and therefore marriage is no longer needed, has served its purpose. And then the third delegation is what we look at today, where we've got the scribes coming to Christ, but um, there happens to be only one. They seem to have decided that they'd only send one representative to Jesus. That's where our text begins. Maybe one thing I should just add is that this, well, we'll get to it. Let's look at, let's look at how our text uh, introduces itself here. It says, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Let's just briefly touch on who the scribes are. Um, I know in German we would say Schriftgelehrer, and that is that is certainly accurate as to uh, part of their makeup. They were learned students of the Bible. They knew the scriptures better than probably most of of the Jews. They were known for their ability uh, with the word or their their understanding of the law and their ability to teach it. If we look back into the Old Testament, you'll find that Ezra was a scribe. And the description we have of him there gives us the idea that he was very well learned. He was very well able to teach from the Old Testament. So these are the main teachers of Judaism. I don't believe that the scribes alone taught in synagogues and on Sabbath worship, but they were the main teachers. Because when you look at 
Jesus, when he goes to the synagogue, he he was given the opportunity to to take the scriptures and teach. And Jesus wasn't a scribe. Um, And so, and the other thing is, uh, according to Matthew 7.29, after Jesus taught in in a synagogue on a Sabbath, um, Mark, actually Matthew, I've got Matthew here, but Mark records the same thing, is that Jesus taught with authority unlike the scribes. And so even though the scribes were the main teachers in Israel, they they were so influenced by traditions of men that had really overtaken just, you know, the bare biblical doctrine that there was no authority left in their teaching. They were, they were simply trying to enforce man-made le- legislation. When Jesus shows up, he takes the law and he preaches the pure word of God. And the people are stunned at the authority by which he teaches. These scribes are sometimes called lawyers. You'll see in, in the, the corresponding gospel account of Matthew, uh, it's recorded that a lawyer comes to Jesus with this question. And let's not be confused. It's, they are one and the same. Um, they are called lawyers because they're expert in the law. So they're not like the lawyers we have today that, well, they're, it's true that they're also experts of the law, but of a different one. These were experts of the law of Moses. They studied the Moses extensively. They knew his teachings inside and out. Their business was to study the law, to transcribe it. That's why they're called scribes, because they also copy the, the law. And that is one way, well, really the principal way that the Word of God was... was uh, preserved through that time. One of the reasons we have so many manuscripts at our fingertips today is because of the word of copyists, scribes, the work of scribes. And they also made commentaries of it, meaning they they wrote down what they um, deciphered or what, what they thought the law taught and how it should be interpreted. And so this scribe, he is he is the last of the three delegations. Uh, he comes up to Christ while the last conversation is still in full swing. It says he heard them disputing with one another. Um, I think we should just make just a brief comment Sometimes it's easy for us to assume that Jesus was such a peaceable, gentle man, he never had a quarrel or a quibble with anyone. Well, that is not true. Here, when you look at the wording, it doesn't say they were, they were uh, discussing something in a friendly manner. It says they were disputing. Jesus was passionate about the truth and... Uh, I, th- I think we need to quit viewing him as this passive, whimsical wimp 
who is standing at the door of your heart pleading to be let in. That kind of uh, picture that the evangelical world wants to paint for us. Poor, pitiful Jesus. He needs our friendship. And without us, he will never be happy. Well, if that's the, uh, the picture we have of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have certainly been reading in something else other than the Word of God, because especially when you get to Revelation, you see the Lamb of God becomes the powerful King of kings and Lord of Lord, lords who is triumphant and all-powerful. And here, the point I just wanted to make is that Jesus was not one to avoid controversy at all costs. But the thing we need to know is that Jesus never argued uselessly in order to simply win an argument. When Jesus argued, it was for the sake of the glory of God and for the preservation of the truth. Every time, and the way Jesus argued was never sinful. This is different from us who when we, even if we're defending a good cause or we're defending the truth of God and the glory of God, it seems to be laced with some kind of, you know, underlying tone of frustration, anger, uh, disgust, or something that mars the our, you know, our effort at defending the truth. That doesn't mean we need to quit. In fact, the opposite is true. We need to contend for the faith. We need to defend the gospel. That's being an apologetic. You defend the truth. And so we're not these passive welcome rugs where people walk all over and we offer little or no resistance to what's coming in. We stand for the truth like Jesus did. And so this scribe, he, he comes up and he, and he sees the interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees. And our text says that he saw that he answered them well. And so here he is taking in the conversation. And he's listening to the Sadducees. He's listening to Jesus, his response. And he concludes that... Jesus gave them a good answer. He answered them well. He answered them according to the truth of God. And so, we are not sure if the question that the scribe has has been assigned to him, or if he simply was given the responsibility of coming up with something. We're not sure. But we know that there is a difference between the scribe and the previous accusers that come to Jesus. This scribe is much more thoughtful. He is much more uh, observant. He, 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 is, he, he doesn't come to Jesus with his mind made up about him. He, he's probably had some preconceived ideas already, but he takes note of what is being said and evaluates based on what he understands the law of Moses to teach. And he concludes that Jesus' answer was, was a good one. It was, it was accurate. And so when that conversation ends, the Sadducees walk away, the scribe comes forward, and it says that 
he puts a question to Jesus, which is, which commandment is the most important of all? That's the question that he puts to Christ. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, the one thing that is not apparent in the text, but what had happened, um, and especially during the silent years, the 400 silent years, what we call the intertestamental period, there had been a lot of um, revising and editing to to Judaism as a whole, their oral tradition, where the you know the initial intent for that was to serve as a commentary to the law, but what it had become was basically. Uh, an additional set of commandments, well, more than just a set, there was a whole host of them. And at this point in time, they had become of more importance and significance to the Jews than the actual scriptures themselves. And that is why Jesus would say to the scribes earlier in the book of Mark that you have, through your tradition, nullified the Word of God. And so their tradition had superseded or, well, kind of overridden the Word. And it had become authoritative, and the Word had become less authoritative. But what they had done to the laws in the five books of Moses, which begin in Exodus, carry through to Deuteronomy, you have various laws, numerous laws, they had concluded that there are 613 laws that have been stated by Moses or by God through Moses, and, and which can comprise of 248 positive commands and 365 prohibitions. So the positive ones would be, you shall do this or that. The negative prohibitions would be, you shall not. And so they would combine, they total 613. Then they take this whole law and they begin dividing up into what would be like categories of heavy laws, those that carry much weight, that are important or more important than others, and, you know, heavy ones and light laws that are less binding. And so there's a bit of a systematizing or a categorizing of the whole law into, you know, between laws that are most important, of most significance, to those that are of least significance. Which in itself is not that bad of an idea because we do know that there is a difference between the, uh, the weight and emphasis of certain laws and commands than others. The problem, though, was that this had become something where the Pharisees especially, and you'll 
we can see this in Matthew chapter 23. Maybe we should go there and I'll just show you. In chapter 23, verse 23, where Jesus pronounces these numerous woes upon the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And he says, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who acts the part of another. He tries to be someone he's not. He's a pretender. That's what it means. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, mercy, excuse me, and faithfulness. So these, this dill, cumin, and mint, these are all tiny little seeds. And so they're trying, they had somehow, um, somehow shifted the, the entire focus and, and purpose of the law to being something of where their concern, their, their deepest concern is about trivial matters. And that's what Jesus says. You're, you're focusing on trying to tithe uh, from these tiny little seeds, and this is an exaggerated example, um, to show how how wrong they were in this. And he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. You've, you've pushed those aside and focused on trivial matters that were of little importance. They were um, even the, the, the smaller and lesser matters of the law weren't unimportant, but compared to the weightier ones like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, they were of lesser importance. Then he says, these you, have, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so there's that, that uh, bit of a, an illustration to show that they were, you know, they're trying to strain out a little fly out of their, their soup or their water. And yet if there's a camel in there, they just swallow it up whole. And that's designed to show us how their focus was on the the lesser important thing. And they ignored the other part. And the reason they did this is because they were blinded by self-righteousness. They they tried to push out justice, mercy, mercy, and faithfulness because they 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 kept falling short and weren't able to keep these so they they kind of shifted to something where they could they felt they were perfect in executing and felt assured by that but to take the law and form a conclusion as to what part of it is the most critical to obey is a perfectly reasonable approach. In the Old Testament, we see a couple examples of that, where in Micah, you'll see in, in 6 verse 8, um, you know, where it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to be holy, and walk humbly with your God? So that's like take that's like considering the question, okay, what are you supposed to do? in the presence of God, and so this is what you do. 
Ecclesiastes 12.12, where Solomon does the same thing. He says, you know, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So that's it's making a summary statement of the entire law. What was that? Is that a shot? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I might need that, bro. We we also do that nowadays when you when you look at a book of systematic theology. You'll have the doctrines classified in some way where we have our primary doctrines and we do this with our statements of faith where we we list the primary doctrines of the faith. And then we have secondary doctrines and even tertiary doctrines. So we've done the same thing. We've we've done some classifying. And that's perfectly reasonable. And so, before we get to Jesus' answer, I think we need to think about what part of the law was most significant to these Jews, to Judaism. How had they summarized the whole law? It may surprise you, but they believed that Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5 was the most significant and critical command for human beings to obey, called the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. And we'll get there in a bit because, interestingly, Jesus gives the exact same answer. Not only was Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, recited as a daily prayer by all Jews, but was a confession of faith in the one true God, Jehovah. Well, now, you know, after a time, they've changed the wording a bit of the Shema. In fact, they it, it sounds like this. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God. So they've, they've taken out Jehovah, because that's Jehovah was there to begin with. They, they've put Adonai in there. That refers to God's power, God Almighty, um, simply because they struggle with Jehovah in the Hebrew. That's why they have pulled out the vowels and uh, and you're left with YHWH which is called a tetragamaton which is a technical word for that um, but they, they're so almost superstitious around Yahweh, the name Yahweh that they put Adonai in there because that's a more common way to refer to God so nowadays, this is how they say it. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God. Adonai is one. So that's the first line. And then they've added a second line called the Baruch Shem, Shema, sorry. Baruch Shema, which you, you will not see in Deuteronomy 6, but they've added that one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And so they will recite that uh, daily. They will recite that in the synagogue during Sabbath worship as part of the liturgy. And so 
why why would this question be put to Jesus? Is the question we should ask. What are they trying to achieve by asking Jesus what is the most important commandment? It's because Moses was the standard that every biblically related teaching was measured by. Everyone, everyone who taught or presented some doctrine was measured by what Moses taught. Moses was the standard. In fact, Moses is the central figure for Judaism. He is their hero. He is their rock. And that's why you'll see in the Gospels when Jesus um, confronts the religious leaders, he will use that to show them that while they claim to be followers or devout followers of Moses, they're in reality, they're not. They're not following him. And so if the Sanhedrin could determine a discrepancy between Jesus' beliefs and the law of Moses, they could discredit his claims and ministry and therefore dispose of him. But now the people held power because it was the people who stood in their way of getting rid of Jesus. Because the people, they, they perceived Jesus to be a prophet. And to take a prophet and remove him from his ministry would be a capital offense. And, and that just wouldn't work. They couldn't do that. And so somehow the Sanhedrin had to convince the people that Jesus was phony and a quack and that they should stop listening to him. Now let's, let's take a look at Jesus' answer. He's put the question as to which is the most significant commandment and here Jesus answers by saying the most important is... And he begins quoting the Shema, right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He just repeats to them their own confession of faith. He basically says, what you believe to be the principal commandment, I believe. In case you're wondering, well, where, where did you get that from? Shema, what does that mean? How, how, how is that associated to Deuteronomy 6 verse 4? It's basically the Hebrew word for hear. You look at the, the wording of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel. That word here is Shema. And so that's where that's from. Now let's, let's kind of look at this statement out of Deuteronomy 6.4. Let's break it down and then we'll, we'll get to the part where we'll uh, give the explanation as to why Jesus and these religious leaders 
are not on the same page, even if they have the same confession of faith. The Lord our God, that's how it starts out. So first, that first phrase, Hero Israel, is, is meant to draw attention to. It's kind of the same thing the New Testament does at times where Jesus will say, He that has an ear to hear, let him hear. That statement is meant for you and I and the original audience to step back and say, okay, what is being said here is of utmost importance and I have to give my complete attention. This is serious stuff. This is important. So it's, it's the same way. It's give ear, give attention. And, and then it says here, the Lord our God. I think it's important for us to note that the possessive pronoun our there is there for a reason. The Lord our God. He is the God of a corporate group of people. And Israel, at this point in time, well, they had begun as God's covenant people when he called Abraham out of Ur. And so the Lord our God reflects the fact that Israel and God were in a covenant relationship. God had initiated the relationship by calling out Abraham and made the covenant with him. And that's what you read about in, in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, the, where God establishes the covenant with Abraham. And the covenant gets renewed, reiterated multiple times after. Always the same key uh, theme, which is God belongs to us, we belong to God. We are in a relationship. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This refers to the fact that God is one in essence. Though he is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Orthodox Jew does not believe in the Trinity. He believes that there is only one singular uh, there's only one person in the Godhead, God the Father, God Jehovah. But the, uh, the statement here out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5, um, it clarifies that God is one. He is not multiple, or he is not many, like the pagan religions around them believe, like Rome, for example. Rome was fine with Israel worshiping God, but they insisted, and this is what drove them crazy when Israel stood firm against worshiping the emperor and all their gods, and that caused many to be martyred. But Israel was firm on the fact that God was one and that he was the only God. They were a monotheistic people. They did not believe in many gods or numerous gods, only one. And all other gods, so to speak, were idols, according to the first and second commandment. The Lord our God, he is one. You shall love the Lord your God. It says here in our text, Quoting out of Deuteronomy 6, we are to 
Israel was to love the Lord their God. We are to love the Lord our God. Everyone is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a universal command. This is not just to believers. This is a universal command. Now we know those outside the faith do not obey this command, but it's a universal command. Every creature of God's is to love him. Every person that has ever lived have been made in the image of God, beginning with Adam. Being made in his image, we are to image him. And we are to love him who has created us. And so one of the, you know, one of the principal, well, probably the principal sin, apart from unbelief, and they are really related, but a lack of a love for God is an incredible sin to not love God. The love that is uh, that is being talked about here is the agape love. This is the same love by which God loves his people. God loves us with agape love. That is a love that is active, that is selfless, and that seeks the highest and best good for its recipient. It's not the love we talk about when 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 we say, "Well, I love this this uh, this shirt, or I love this golf club, or I I love this new truck that I'm driving," be, because that's that's a that that's an expression of gratitude for getting something that you wanted. In that sense, so you, you love something because it serves you, right? You love pizza, you love it because it serves you. It it uh, gratifies your Taste buds makes you feel good. That's not the love that this is talking about. This is a love that goes above and beyond feeling, above and beyond opinion. Because when you think of how God has loved us, 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now, was God's love initiated by seeing something in us that made him love us? No. He, he saw us as fallen human beings that were the polar opposite of, his, of himself. He is perfectly holy and just. We are unholy. We are profane idolaters at heart. There's nothing in us that makes God love us in that reactionary way. We're abominable in his sight in that sense because of the fall. And so God's love has transcended that. And he has expressed his love to us in Christ despite of our unlovableness. And so Christ's death on the cross was an expression of God's love, and that love was a selfless act of love that was not based upon God's God um, feeling like we were giving him anything. 
because we weren't. And that's why John 3.16 is worded the way it is. For God so loved the world. That's not like uh, an expression of intensity. Like God loved the world so much. He had so much love for it. No, in this manner. For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this manner. That's how it should be interpreted. And yes, it was a great love. It was an intense love, but it was not affected by who we were. Because if it was, God would have never loved us. Now this love that we are to have for God, that Israel was supposed to have for God, is a love that, according to Paul, has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That same Greek word agape, that active, selfless love, not based upon your emotion or feeling. And so, based on that text, you would begin to think that this love can only come from God himself, and it doesn't come naturally. You cannot love God without conversion. You cannot love God without the new birth. You, you can think you love God. But the thing is, the vast majority of p- p- professors in that sense that think they love God, but in reality don't, they love God because of what they perceive God is doing for them. The minute God puts something into their life that is negative, that puts them down to their knees, all of a sudden they question God's love. Why? Because their definition of God's love is based upon what he's doing for me. And if it's not something great and nice, that means all of a sudden God doesn't love me the way he used to. That's not how God's love works. It's not based upon your performance, not based upon um, how much you contribute for his cause. God's love is based purely upon himself, his own satisfaction, his own glory. We are to love God in this way with all our hearts, says here, with all your heart. Now look at that adjective, with, or the adjective being used, all. What does that say to us? Is God a requiring a half-hearted love, a, you know, 70%? All. That means complete engagement. When you do something with all your might in a physical sense, what does that mean? That means all. You're giving it your all. With all your heart. And so these, these four faculties that are mentioned here, heart, soul, mind, and strength, have to do with our makeup, with what we, who we are. And so when we are to love God with all our heart, this refers to loving God with the core of your identity. Because when, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about you, who you are, not, not your body. The you that lives inside your body. I know sometimes when Paul says, you know, to be present with the Lord is to be absent from the body. 
and talks about the spirit present with the Lord. So you could get that them confused. You know, what are what is the me? Is it a spirit? Is it a is it my heart? What is it? So it seems that when Paul talks about our reality in glory, he uses spirit to refer to the inner us being in the presence of God. But in this case, when it talks about morality, about um, what, how we live, who, how we act, then it refers to the inner us as your heart. And you can read many texts in Proverbs as well as in the Gospels that talk about this. As Jesus says, from the heart proceeds, and he lists them off, adulteries, fornication, uh, and a whole host of evil things that proceed from our heart. And so that tells us that, you know, we're, we're not simply victim. We're not a victim that somehow because of somebody else's influence we do wrong. No, these things come out of our very inner being, the core of our identity because of the fall and because of our flesh. And he also says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so what's extremely valuable to us, our entire inner being is attached to that. And so sometimes we can kind of see what's valuable to us by our heart attachment. We are to love the Lord our God this way, with the entirety of our inner being. We're also we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. Love God with all of your soul. Now, it might be it is difficult to kind of make that division. You know, what's the difference between the soul and your heart? Um, but there, there's one text in Matthew where Jesus, anticipating the cross, he says, "My soul." is deeply grieved. My soul is troubled. And he's talking about the the thought of the cross brought about this grief, this agony. And so it seems that the soul brings about the emotional dimension to who you are. According to that one text, and I, I only kind of looked at one, so not not very exhaustive there. But we could say, love the Lord your God with all your emotional being along with your core identity, your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your mind is the next phrase, which is our faculty of reason. You use your mind to think. We're supposed to love God with all of our minds. So you come to church on Sunday morning, you don't leave your mind in the car. You bring it inside because we use it to worship. We love God with our minds. That means we think. How else do you study God's Word? You take thinking out of the equation, what do you have left? Mindless you know, skimming over words without them having any meaning. That's what the charismatic movement is trying to introduce to us. Worship, 
does not include your mind. That's tragically wrong. I used the example of the communion table last Sunday, how when Jesus calls us to do these things, take the bread and the wine, he says, do do this in remembrance of me. Now, how do you remember without engaging the use of your mind? You can't. The mind is a vital part of loving God, according to Jesus. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart. So there's, in this one proverb, we've got the two dimensions of your being, which is your mind and your heart. As you think in your heart, your meditations, the way you process, you know, what goes on in your life, how you process the world and everything, that is who you are, it says. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And we are to love God with all of our strength. Love God with all your strength, meaning your physical energy. When we put what is inside into outward action, that's strength. You, you, you know, you put shoes to this idea. It goes to work. And so just to summarize what the Shema taught, we could say, is using, is summarizing into one sentence, that Israel and everyone else is to love God with an inherently motivated love, not superficial, not put on, it's inside. It's real. And an emotional love, so it's not like some kind of cold, indifferent, uh, emotionless response to God, but an emotional love based on what he has done for us, an intelligent love, and an active love. That's how God is to be loved. That is how he requires us to love him with all that we are. You know, the Shema is actually really a summary statement of the first four commandments of the ten. Do you know that? It just summarizes what the first four commandments teach. You shall have no other gods before me. Number one. Don't make to yourself a graven image. Bow down and worship it. That's number two. Well, what do those two imply? That God is to be loved alone. He is to be held in. He is to be worshipped alone. He is not to be worshipped and loved in conjunction to something else. He's a jealous God, the scriptures teach us. What about commandment three? Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And four, worship or keep my Sabbath holy. All of that points to a singular love for God. That He is worthy of our devotion, our praise, everything that we have, everything that we are. 
is God's. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He continues. You would think he had sufficiently answered the question, but he continues by saying, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I thought we were talking about God. I thought we were talking about the first greatest commandment. But now Jesus presents another one. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now going back to the Ten Commandments, I said the first four commandments are summarized in the Shema. But the last six are summarized in this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, John in 1 John 4.20 says the same thing. The one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And so both Jesus and John present these commandments as impossible to separate. They're inextricably linked. And that's why Jesus didn't just feel it necessary, felt it necessary to just kind of carry on thinking, well, I've got your attention, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep going through this. No, this is done for a reason. It's, there is purpose here. Wish I could remember the text where Jesus, oh, I even remembered it. Matthew 22, verse, I actually think this is the corresponding text, but it's very relevant to what we're saying here right now. Um, Matthew 22, 37. Um, this is the same account in Mark, uh, or the same interaction just recorded by Matthew here. And he writes, And he said to him, this is the scribe, You shall love the Lord your God. Sorry, this is Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus does here is he summarizes the entire Old Testament into two principal commands. Love God, love your neighbor. And they must be together. Because nowhere are you going to see Jesus separating them. They are together in this text and then the other text. And John agrees with it as well. That true love for God is shown by external, well it's, it's also internal, but it, it presents itself externally, love for your neighbor. And that's why John says, if you don't love your brother, who is a visible representation of God in the fact that we're images of God. How can you love God who is invisible, who is being represented in this individual? 
And so there, there's no way around this. If we say we love God, we must love our neighbor. If we say we love our neighbor, we must love God. They go together. You can't have a, a perfect love for God and, and a hatred towards someone at the same time. It's, that's, that's incompatible. It doesn't work. And so Jesus really he does his own classification of the weight of God's laws in saying there is no commandment greater than these. He has just classified them. He has said the ones he just mentioned, love God, love your neighbor, they are of the greatest weight and emphasis. And could we say, if you read through the, the legislation of Exodus 21 to 23, that it follows the giving of the Ten Commandments, that all of those laws, they reflect how we are to love our neighbor. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those, but just to give an example, there, there's an extensive section that talks about how if, if, if a man's ox gets out of his pen, and he goes about destroying the neighbor's property, even to the, to the extent of killing someone, that there is to be retribution, that that man must be penalized in accordance to what happened. From repaying for the damaged crop or a life in exchange for the life taken. When you think about, okay, what, what is that, what is that what purpose is there in this? It is to, um, to promote the well-being of others. Why is there laws about your, why can't your beast just go wild? Who cares? No, these laws are there for the well-being of your neighbor. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The Old, Old Testament is not just there so that we can, so that they could take revenge on each other and have a good time doing it. No, it was for the protection and well-being of others. Look at each one of those, and you'll see it. They reflect the second greatest commandment, which is linked to the first commandment. Now the scribe hears Jesus' answer. having obviously not just, you know, waited for his turn to, to say his piece, but actually considered what Jesus said. It says that this... Let's go back to the text. The scribe said to him, so he replies to Jesus after hearing his response. He says, you are right, teacher. You are right. He affirms Jesus' statement as being perfectly in accordance with the law of Moses. He just didn't just say, according to my opinion, you're right. No, according to what I know and we know the law of Moses teaches, you are right. You are right in line with what we believe. And then he makes this remarkable observation that Jesus makes note of. 
He says, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. So he kind of echoes what Jesus has said about the Shema. God is one. God is, there's only one God. We don't worship multiple gods. He alone is God. That That's, you know, the first test of orthodoxy, you could say, for Jesus. You know, Jesus would say, well, there's a couple of gods that are, you know, to be worshipped. Fail. And, and we know, of course, Jesus would not have said that because he is part of the Trinitarian Godhead. And so he, he, the scribe affirms what Jesus has said. He carries on and says, And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, you know, just at a glance, we might not think much of that. Okay. Interesting. But this, this is really remarkable. Because, like I said, we would compare between what Jesus understood the Shema to mean and what, and how the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and the whole lot of the religious leaders, how they applied the Shema is vastly different. While they agreed on the principal commandment, they didn't agree, well, in, in principle, they didn't agree. Meaning how it worked itself out. And Jesus exposes them on this when he says in a different section of the gospel, he says to them, you draw near to God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. Or we just talked about the heart as being part of our love for God. That the, our love for God should proceed from all of our heart. And here Jesus says, your heart, that should be full of a, a reverent love for God, is far from God. The only thing near to God is your lips, which refers to your speech. You know, they they had this verbal, or they performed verbal worship, verbal ceremony, but their hearts weren't anywhere near God. They worshipped themselves. They worshipped their own system. They worshipped their own self-righteousness. But they had no love for God even while they thought they did. They thought the way we live, the way we practice our religion, that is our expression of love for God. And so, yeah, of course we're in line with this. But in reality, it was an expression of their love for themselves. Religious externalism with selfish and prideful intentions which worked itself out in how they related to their neighbor. What else did Jesus expose them on? He says, Beware of the scribes and Pharisees, for they devour widows' houses. 
They took advantage of the weakest in society. When there is much legislation in the Old Testament law about the protection of widows and fatherless children, orphans. Where the law emphasized the love for neighbor the most, that's where they transgressed the most. They walked into their houses, they had no man to protect them, and they robbed them of their money by offering their religious services and counsel. The intent of the law, the intent of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, would be that God would be glorified with our complete, authentic devotion. That's not something we've drummed up throughout the week, trying to get ready for Sunday, try to get that church face on. No, this is authentic, it's real. Would manifest in itself in our dealings with other people. That's God's intent. That God would be most glorified and that people would be most served and benefited. That was God's intent. They had completely revised that. They had, they had shifted their focus to where it all catered to their own self-religious pride. Now the scribe is different. He says, to love God with your, all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself the internal reality is more important than externalism. Burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's what that refers to. The external obedience to the law. It's not that that wasn't important. But the Pharisees and scribes had put all their emphasis on the external and none on the internal. That's why Jesus says, outwardly, you appear to be righteous before men, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones, meaning there's no life in you. You're dead. You're a corpse walking. You have no spiritual life. And the scribe, based on what he has understood of Jesus, comes to the understanding that the inward comes before the outward. It is more important. It is more it is what God wants all along. That's what God had intended for the law to do, to produce, produce that inward devotion to him. And then when we would relate to people, it would come from the heart too. He had the correct concept in his grasp. Now, Jesus says, when he hears this man's statement, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's an interesting statement. He didn't say, you're in the kingdom. He says, you're not far from the kingdom. Meaning, I'm not sure what, how, we should, how we should interpret this or if we even should comment on this, but it seems that this scribe is moving toward the kingdom. I know there, um, in, in conversion, sometimes there's a process of time in which we begin coming to the light where 
not everybody's conversion story is exactly identical, but some people talk about, you know, being months where they somehow God just brought or just awoke this curiosity and and desire to know something of his word. And, you know, in the process of time, they the light bulbs came on and they understood the gospel and were saved. Maybe that's the scribe. He has come, no doubt, to a remarkable uh, to observe a remark or to learn of a remarkable truth, something that goes contrary to what he is used to believing. Our text says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Sanhedrin abandoned this approach altogether. They discovered that to trap Jesus in matters of theology was impossible. He was too wise. But the thing is, this wasn't just merely an argument of who is more, who is, who is smarter, who is intellectually smarter. This was about the truth. And the fact that they got nowhere with him is because not only was he the truth, but he presented the truth. And you can't argue against the truth. And that's why the Sanhedrin's Sanhedrin shift their tactic, they change their tactic. And you'll see that from here on in, they seek to incriminate Jesus with lies and false witnesses, and they get it accomplished. That's how they push Jesus through trial and persuade Pilate to hand him over to the executioners because of lies and false witnesses. They can't use the truth. Let's conclude. The question that you and I should have this morning based on what we've seen in the text is okay it's clear to me that I am to love God with everything that I am now how is that possible if I'm a fallen human being how can I love God perfectly in this way maybe you're thinking my you know just this past week I came so far short of this I don't even want to begin How do we respond? How, how do we solve this? Because this is what God requires. This is where the gospel is so glorious. No doubt God has made it clear we are to love him with all that we are. But the thing is, in Christ, God has enabled him, us rather, to love him this way albeit imperfectly. Perfect love for God will be experienced in glory when we are in our resurrection body, we are out of this old body that we're in right now, 
and there is no presence of sin or the devil. Then we will experience perfect, complete love for God. But now we experience it imperfectly and partially, but nevertheless we experience it. Why? Because God has given us that love. He's enabled us by Christ because without Christ, We've all concluded that that's impossible. The scriptures have concluded that, and that's why we have come to that conclusion. That we can't. We can't love God this way unless there is intervention from God. And God has provided that through Christ. That is why um, the text or the passage I quoted of Romans 5 5, where God has shed in our hearts. He has poured His love into our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we can now love Him this way and our neighbor as ourselves. So here's the question. Have we surrendered to Christ? Have we believed Have you come to realize that you are a sinner and are in need of saving? You are here this morning and you have struggled for years thinking you've loved God and yet your conscience has constantly reminded you that you don't love Him because of your love for other things, other idols in your life. And you're here wondering, how, how can I now love God? How can I, how can I do this when I, when I am just so far away, or I feel so far away from God? Feel, and this is what we need to recognize first, is that we are sinners. I am a sinner. And then we need to realize that God has provided a Savior. God has provided a substitute. Because the fact is that since we are sinners, we deserve God's eternal wrath and justice. And apart from Christ's intervention, that is what we will receive. And so we have to think about, we have to come to the realization that Christ has come to pay the penalty for my sins. That's what he has come to do. He has paid the penalty. And if we believe savingly, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins, God has promised that He will save us. And when He has saved us, or when He is saving us, He is also giving us this love so that we can truly love Him in return the way He has loved us. And then we will also be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. And God will be ultimately glorified because it's all for Him.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, at the close of this meeting, Father, we ask again that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts. Father, that you would look past the mistakes made in the sermon and use this word for strength, for encouragement, for conviction, for fruitfulness, Father, in each one of our lives. Father, that all that we do and all that we are would serve to enhance your glory. Amen.